Father, we are drawn together to worship the one Lord, the one God, our Savior, our King. We know, Lord, that you are present here with us, that your Spirit is upon us. And Father, we're all here in in different conditions, not only physically, but spiritually, emotionally. Many have uh, hard things going on in their lives right now, and and they need your special strength. Uh, Others may be distracted in various areas, but Lord, I pray that you will enable us to focus on what you are saying to us, that everything that is not of you will be uh, shunted aside and and what it is that you would have us to learn and from that to do uh, will be ours today. Father, I do pray for those that are not here this morning. Many are away uh, having the last vacation maybe of uh, this summer. Pray that you'll uh, keep them safe and uh, protect them, bring them home safely. And Father, we just pray that uh, uh, as we move into the fall that uh, we will Uh, sense your presence upon this church in a new way uh, with greater enthusiasm for the work which you're doing, greater submission to your spirit. Father, we trust you for the ministry of the spirit throughout our Sunday schools this morning and in the service that is uh, going on concurrently. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I would like for us to uh, turn to the 27th chapter of the book of Exodus. 27th chapter of the book of Exodus. I'd like to begin reading with verse 9. We've been studying the um, tabernacle and the various parts of the tabernacle, the various uh, implements that were part of it. And uh, this particular chapter deals primarily with the courtyard that was around the tabernacle. So beginning at verse 9, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side there shall be hangings for the court of fine twisted linen, 100 cubits long for one side. And its pillars shall be 20, with their 20 sockets of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. And likewise for the north side in length there shall be hangings 100 cubits long. And its 20 pillars with their 20 sockets of bronze, the hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. For the width of the court on the west side shall be the hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. And the width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And for the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen of 20 cubits of blue, purple, and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver with their four pillars and four sockets. All the pillars around the court shall be furnished with silver bands with their hooks of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits and the width 50 throughout and the height five cubits of fine twisted linen and their sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle used in its service and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Verse 19 refers to the implements used to set up the tabernacle and to set up the the courtyard, not the implements used inside uh, for the actual sacrifices and ceremonies. 
Well, many, I, I can remember years ago, many, many years ago, <laughs> when I first read this passage, I couldn't read it fast enough uh, because, <laughs> you know, hangings here and bronze sockets there and bands of silver somewhere else. Uh, it, it didn't seem to uh, hold a lot of meaning, just referring to some structure that was built a long time ago, which has since disappeared and, and doesn't mean anything to us today, obviously, uh, because in the New Testament everything is different. But in the years intervening, I've come to view this uh, somewhat differently. What we're looking at here in this particular passage is the courtyard that was built out around the tabernacle. Tabernacle, tabernacle was the tent that was inside this, this courtyard. So it was basically just open space uh, surrounded by these curtain walls that are described here. Now, again, a cubit was approximately a foot and a half. So it's 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide, which makes it 150 feet by 75 feet, which if you figure that out, comes to about 11,250 square feet of territory within this, this curtain wall, which is more or less roughly a quarter of an acre. The court, as it was constructed there, screened off from the Israelite camp, the tabernacle, with these seven and a half foot high walls of curtain, which went completely around the, the tabernacle uh, enclosure. And as we read there, these curtains were made out of fine linen. Linen was a very common fabric of the ancient world, particularly in the Near East. And of course, it's primarily manufactured from flax, and it was very highly developed in the Egyptian world. The Egyptians had used linen uh, to such, for such a long period of time. They had perfected it, so it was a very, very uh, fine material. Now, what they're dealing with here is a heavier linen, but they actually developed linen that was so fine that it was actually uh, translucent to transparent. And that's how good they got at uh, working with linen. But this certainly, we're not talking about material that is uh, transparent here. We're talking about heavy linen, which is kind of a cream color, which uh, was used to make these curtains. And, and they were hung between these pillars of acacia wood that were spaced at seven and a half foot intervals, five cubits apart, which would be about seven and a half feet. So every seven and a half feet, you had another pillar. And these pillars, of course, were used to support this curtain wall as, they, as it surrounded the, um, the tabernacle itself. So you have 150 foot curtain walls on the north and on the south. Whichever way that is, uh, what's north that way? I lose track back here in this corner. Is that way? Okay, anyway, 150 foot walls on the north and the south and 75 foot walls on the east and on the west. Now according to this passage, it seems that the um, acacia wood pillars here were capped with a kind of a silver cap on which were these hooks, these silver hooks that are described here. So if you can kind of picture this, it talks about a band. Uh, apparently the, it, it capped and, and went completely around the top of the uh, acacia wood pillar with hooks, these silver hooks, uh, to which the ropes were attached that went from one pillar to the other pillar and from which the curtains hung. Now there was probably a second band near the base so that a, a second rope would run out through the base so the curtains would be fixed top and bottom. Otherwise, obviously, the first wind blow and you'd have all these curtains going whee, like this. So uh, certainly the rope went through the top, went through the bottom so that the 
curtains were held vertical even when the wind was um, blowing. And so the, the hooks that, into which the ropes were attached uh, were made out of silver, probably a silver alloy. Silver itself in its pure form is kind of soft, not quite as soft as gold, but fairly soft. And I would think that a strong wind could distort hooks uh, like that. So probably it was a silver alloy of some type. Actually, it takes a pretty good uh, forge to purify silver without being alloyed because silver as it's found in nature is normally uh, alloyed. It's normally mixed with other metals, as is gold. Uh, gold is almost never found in a pure uh, unalloyed form. It's almost always alloyed with silver or copper or one of these others, which gives you the different shades that you see in gold. You know, you hear about Black Hills gold. When I first heard about that, I th thought, well, I mean, so who cares where it came from? A Black Hills gold. But uh, later I discovered it was because it has a certain admixture of other metals in it, which gives it a different cast from gold that may be mined somewhere else. Uh, gold which has copper in it is more reddish than gold which has silver in it, and so forth. And, and silver is the same way. Uh, so it comes out of the ground, and when it's melted down, it has uh, natural alloys in it. Then we were told that there was a bronze base, this bronze base which was uh, placed on the ground and into which the pillar was thrust. So each of these pillars had a bronze base. We have no idea how big the bases were, but obviously they were big enough to give a little bit of support uh, to the pillar as it was placed in these uh, particular bases. Now, we might think, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever tried to string, well, this is like a clothesline. A clothesline, when you, you have your, your T-bars on the two ends and uh, you, you put your wire in between and you hang your clothes on it, as time passes, especially if all you've done is put a wooden thing in the ground there and you haven't cemented it in or anything else, eventually those bars start to come in like this and the wires sag. Well, the same would be true of these pillars. Except, of course, as you string them one to the other, they mutually support one another through the tension from both directions. But obviously the problem that you find is the possibility of the curtain wall just blowing completely over, you know, from a perpendicular wind. But that's where verse 19 comes in. It says, all the utensils of the tabernacle used in its services and all of its pegs and all the pegs of the court were bronze. And so at right angles to each post, at right angles to the curtain wall, were tie lines, which were pegged into the ground with these bronze pegs. And so if you visualize this, and, and Dr. Walmart, could you bring that next, that next week? There is a model of the tabernacle and of the courtyard, which was done by a Simpson student, what, 40 years ago or 30, 30 years ago? Anyway, Dr. Walmart has that in his office, and if we bring it next Sunday, we'll look at it. It's, what, so big? And, and it shows the little tie lines that were there for, for each of the uh, posts so that they were supported from four sides. And that way they, they were pretty solid as, they were, as the uh, enclosure was set up and as the tabernacle itself was set up with tie lines too from all of those different uh, uh, bars that were erected vertically to hold the tabernacle material up. Now the passage tells us, and, and other passages tell us, that the tabernacle was placed at the west end of this enclosure. So if you can visualize this enclosure as a rectangle that is twice as long as it is wide, the tabernacle was not placed in the middle. It was placed in the back portion of 
the enclosure, towards the west end of this particular enclosure. And the reason for that was that two of the implements were placed in front of it. One was the bronze altar, which we talked about last week, and the other is the great laver, which we have not yet talked about, uh, the great place where the washing, the ablutions occurred. Uh, so the, both of those were placed in front of uh, the entrance to the tabernacle, so it was set towards the rear of, of this enclosure, towards the west end of the enclosure. It was set directly in line with the entrance to the enclosure. This 30-foot opening curtain, which would be parted, and, and the people could come into the courtyard here through this so that your uh, entrance to the tabernacle, the, the curtain by which you went into the tabernacle, was directly in line with the entrance curtain by which you came in to the enclosure. And if you were to stand at the tent at the tabernacle entrance and look to the east, you would look and first thing you would see was the laver. Just beyond that, directly in line, would be the bronze altar. And then beyond that would be the entrance curtain that went out or in. <laughs> and that would be all directly lined up with the rising sun, faced due east. That was the way it was set up to be. Now, the, uh, <clears throat> the east side curtain wall had the uh, entrance curtain in it. It was a 30-foot entrance curtain, so there was a curtain that, that hung out across that space by which entrance was made into the compound itself. Now, we're told in the passage of Scripture that there were four pillars that supported this curtain. So instead of just a single pillar on each side, which separated seven and a half foot intervals of curtain, there were two pillars on each side, probably set in tandem so that the rope that went across would then go out like this to the two pillars to give double strength to, to support the entrance curtain as it was hung on the east side of the compound. All of this curtain wall, if you can visualize it, would be a cream color, except the entrance curtain. The entrance curtain was made also of fine linen, but it had the blue, the purple, and the scarlet embroidery as the inner material of the tabernacle itself had. That which was seen inside the tabernacle, the inner covering, uh, had this blue, purple, and scarlet embroidery. So did the entrance curtain. The only difference was the entrance curtain, there's no statement of any cherubim being embroidered in that. So it was just the woven colors uh, into this entrance curtain. So you couldn't miss where the entrance curtain was, obviously, because it was so different in its appearance from the rest of the curtain wall. So what? <laughs> Who cares, right, about all of this? Well, there's a great deal of symbolism here, and I think it's important symbolism. The purpose of the curtain wall was very obvious. Uh, the purpose of, of the curtain wall was to keep people from just casually wandering up to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a holy place because God had so ordained it to be. Now, People in, in the world in general tend to look at a church, a synagogue, a monastery, a temple, or something as a holy place if they're of that particular faith. Well, generally speaking, none of those places are any more holy than any other place on the surface of the earth. A place is holy only if God has so ordained it to be. God chose to place his name in the tabernacle. And therefore, it was by his choice that it becomes, in effect, the holy place. 
it, it was therefore not right for the people to just treat it mundanely. And so to, to set a, aside the tabernacle, it was screened off. Now a seven and a half foot high curtain wall pretty well seals off, at least visually, the tabernacle. I'm not saying somebody couldn't walk up next to a post and part the curtain and look in. Obviously, you know, they could do that. The point was, as they went through their daily routine, they weren't just looking at the tabernacle as if it were just another part of the visual landscape, you know, nothing particularly important. Uh, something that they could actually blunder into by accident. Can you imagine? You're riding your donkey by, you know, and suddenly the donkey throws you or horse or whatever, and you go flying through the air and go right into the Holy of Holies. That could be pretty dangerous. <coughs> so this curtain wall sealed the tabernacle off from casual glimpses and casual contact uh, by the people of Israel. There was only one way by which you could get into the complex. And that was through the entrance curtain. There was only one way into the tabernacle itself, and that was through the first veil. There was only one way into the Holy of Holies, and that was by the second veil. So the symbolism here is the fact that God has provided only one way to come to Him. That's important in our society. It might not have been a, a, you know, as important to the ancient Israelis, even though it certainly would have been to some degree as they were surrounded by pagan societies. And they had, they had spent all their years prior to this living in Egypt with its multiplicity of polytheistic gods and goddesses. But in our society, it's very important because we live in a pluralistic society where it's not appropriate for you or for me to say that mine's the only way. It's politically correct to accept everybody's way as being just as valid as yours or mine. But God is not politically correct. God is eternally and holily, no such word, but I just made it up, didn't I? Uh, correct. There is one way by which we can come to God. It's not the proverbial mountain, you know, where heaven is at the top and it doesn't matter which side of the mountain you come up you know, Muhammad's way or Buddha's way or the Hindu way or whatever. There is only one way into the presence of the living God. And, by, and that's by the way which he ordained. And he ordained it to Israel. You know, what really bothers me is, of course, and you can expect this from, from people who live in an evolutionary age, and that is that God evolved. And the whole concept of God is the result of, of evolution. If you've ever read uh, the, uh, one of the early books written by James Michener called The Source, which deals mostly with Israel and so forth, he in there really kind of talks about the evolution of God, <laughs> how God came into a being, you know. And the, the whole idea is, of course, that uh, God is a human invention. And, and that God is not really a, a supernatural being who made it all because certainly evolutionists and, and people who are, who are not Christians don't want God to be the only way to attain eternal life or that there even is eternal life uh, because they're not living that way and they don't believe that way and they don't want to change. And so it, it, all of this kind of teaching is, is very uh, diametrically opposed to what is currently the appropriate way uh, to teach and to believe in our society today. But, but God's truth has been eternally the same. And I think what's important for us as we study the history of our faith is to recognize that it is not that it evolved, you know, that somewhere way back in time somebody came up with the concept of God. 
And then Moses created Judaism, you know. Moses got up on the mountain and, and sort of like Muhammad when he went out in the cave and had all these hashish-induced uh, visions, came up with his, his uh, religion, that some feel that's what happened with Moses. And just Moses just invoke, in, invite, invented what became Judaism. In other words, it's mosaic religion. What we have to see is that what we have is God slowly in his time revealing more and more of himself and of his way. God has never changed. The God of Adam and Eve is the God who lives today. He is the God of all eternity. He was no different then than he is today. The Old Testament Jehovah is the same Jesus of the New Testament and he has not changed. He is no different whatsoever. It's just the degree to which he revealed himself and, of course, partly societal reaction to him. And so as you, you look at the God of, Abraham, of, of, uh, of Adam and Eve and, and the God of Enoch and the God of Noah and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the God of Joseph and the God of the Israelites now, he is the same God. There's only been ever one way to achieve his favor. And that's by faith and obedience, trust and obey. There is no other way to, to come to God. And that's the way it always has been. And we, I emphasized this before. God said of Noah that Noah believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and God therefore imputed righteousness to him. You and I believe in what we've heard about Jesus Christ, that he is our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King, and therefore God has imputed righteousness to us. It really is not any different. It's just that Noah didn't know the name Jesus, and neither did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it is the same God. And, and so we have the teaching here, which is symbolized in the one entrance into the enclosure, the one entrance into the tabernacle, and the one entrance into the Holy of Holies. There was only one way into the presence of the sovereign God. And Jesus Christ made it even more clear to us when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. That doesn't change anything what we're looking at here. Because the God, Yahweh, Jehovah, that they were worshiping was the triune God that we know. Jesus Christ, the Father, the Spirit, at the same time. Furthermore, we see symbolism in the curtain wall being made of this white linen. Throughout Scripture, white linen seems to symbolize righteousness over and over again. You know, uh, whenever an angel appears, he's in shimmering robes of white linen. Jesus Christ is transfigured into shimmering robes of light white linen. And, and this becomes almost specifically stated when we come to a passage in Revelation. We won't turn to it, but when speaking of the bride of the Lamb, these words are written, And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, symbolically. And so this, this white linen continues to symbolize the the, the cleansing, the purity, and all that has to do with the holiness of God. In, in the book of Numbers, we discover that this whole complex, the, the compound of the tabernacle itself, 
was to be placed right at the very heart of the Israeli camp. Whenever the Israelites picked up their whole, uh, you know, everything and moved, uh, whenever they set up camp again, they were always to put the temple, the, the tabernacle complex right smack in the middle of the camp. And that was not to protect it from some marauding band. God is able to protect his own tabernacle. It symbolized the truth that God was in their very midst. God was at the heart of the Hebrew nation. And they were to worship him as the central factor in their lives. They may herd sheep. They may be an artisan of some sort. They may uh, be the, the mother of the household who has all the multiple duties that the mother has. But whoever they were, the central person, the central factor in their lives was to be their worship of Yahweh. Their very existence depended on the sovereign God. They were his chosen people. And while, without him, they were nothing. And we see that over and over again, don't we? As we read through the scripture, we read through the book of, uh, of Judges, and they keep turning their back on God, and they get zapped. And later on, when they turn their back on God, God not only declares that without him they are nothing, but he allows his very temple to be destroyed by a pagan enemy. And many of the, of the Jews of that time felt that couldn't possibly happen. It's God's temple. He won't let it be destroyed. And we're his people. We can live like the devil and we're still his people. And God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to flatten the temple. And for the Ark of the Covenant, that holy implement, to be lost forever. God is not in a building except when he declares himself to be there. He is not in a box. So to depend on some kind of a touchstone is foolish. And that's what they were doing. They're depending on their heritage, on the temple, on the, on the ark. And God said, you've got to depend on me. It's like us t trusting in some little cross dangling around our neck or some little series of beads that we pray along or, or whatever else. Later on, when, when Moses constructs a serpent on a staff in the wilderness, because God says to do that so that the Israelis who are dying from serpent bites will look and live, later on we're told in Scripture that they were worshiping that thing. And God said, destroy it. And so they would. And so we, we see these, uh, this important concept of the central position of God in the Israeli camp. And that reminds us, it reminded me at least when I was thinking about this, of Jesus teaching to his disciples on prayer where he said, for where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Now, if you and I are children of God, he indwells us whether we're alone or with a thousand other believers. But when we gather for the purpose of worship, he is there in a special way. He is central to what we do. And I trust that as we come to a class like this, that he is central to what we're doing here. We're trying to, uh, hopefully, hopefully what we're doing is we're exalting him in the midst of our study of his word and our, our reaction to it, our, our relationship to it. And as the service goes on over there uh, next door in the sanctuary, that, uh, that he is central to what is happening there. There's a, an eternal condition that is also illustrated later on in the book of Revelation, and we won't 
uh, turn there either. But in the 21st chapter, when John is describing the eternal city, these words are said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. When we get to heaven, God will not be any closer to us or any more amongst us than he is right now, but all of those blinders which prevent us from seeing who he is and what he is will be stripped away. We'll be given new bodies, new eyes, the ability to see him as he is, Scripture tells us. He's just the same right now. He's just as much here right now even though we can't touch him. But, but we have to live by faith, faith that he's here right now. And I would lay anything I have to lay on the fact that he's here right now. And, and he's speaking to every one of us. And, and we're all responding differently. Some of us are hearing clearly. Some of us are half deaf. Uh, you know, some of us have got other things going on which are, are making us wonder, God, if you really love me, why is this happening? That's a very common response to the human. And, and you know, one of the important things about this is to realize God doesn't look down on one as opposed to the other because one's hearing better than the other. He loves us all equally. His compassion for us is the same. His mercy towards us is the same. It's just that his heart breaks more for the one who isn't hearing him as clearly than for the other. I mean, you know, he's delighted in us all. But it's for our sake that he wants us to hear him more clearly, not for his. I mean, he's perfect. He can't have any more than he has. He's got everything. But he, but he hurts for us because he knows what we're going through. And so much of what we go through is self-induced because of the weakness of our flesh. It's very important for us to keep Jesus central in our lives, that we view ourselves as the tabernacle of God. The Spirit of God dwells within us. He is central to us. Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. This same concept in the tabernacle, the same concept in Revelation. God in our midst, literally in our midst. If we don't daily acknowledge his sovereignty in word and deed, and I think it's really something we have to do virtually every day. Because I don't know if maybe you don't have this problem, but I have the problem I can kick into autopilot. And I can just go through the day and do what I have to do and not even think about things I should be thinking about, you know, things I can kind of shunt them away and, and just be single-minded towards what I'm supposed to do, or I think I'm supposed to do, and, and, and neglect some of these relationships that are important, particularly my relationship with him. And I need to remind myself by word, by prayer, by deed, that he is, he is central in my life. When we don't do that, we bring unnecessary pain suffering, anxiety into our lives and in the lives of those around us. You ever been around, certainly you have, maybe you've even been one, uh, kind of a pessimistic type person, you know, everything's so bad, you know, the Lord doesn't seem to be hearing any prayers, the world's going to hell and, and all this kind of thing. And, you know, after a while, it just kind of, it oozes out and you just kind of a damper comes over you, you know, if you're in association with such a person. And all of us are certainly guilty of that at one time or another. I'm not saying we need to go around like bubbling little fountains, you know, that everything is just wonderful and glorious and good. I mean, it's obviously not. But God is wonderful and glorious and good, and he never changes. 
And I'm, I'm not into the person who always says, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, no matter whatever, whatever's going on, because after a while it seems to ring hollow. But if we want to know the peace of God, if we want to know true joy and contentment, if we want to know the power of God, and, and a true sense of worth and purpose, I mean, that's behind so much of what you and I do. The desire for a sense of worth and purpose what in the world am I here for? <laughs> what good am I? I mean, a lot of people won't admit it, but that's really at the root of what they say, think, and do. A desire to feel like they're worth something. If Jesus Christ is central in our lives, we have no reason to think that we are not worth everything to Him. And that He will use us as His channel to touch other lives in whatever way He has gifted us, in whatever way He empowers us, and in whatever opportunities He gives us. It isn't always going to be the same. Now, not all of us are going to carry sandwich boards downtown Reading saying, Repent, for you're going to go to hell if you don't, you know, or something like that. Or not all of us are going to stand up on, on a platform and preach. Not all of us are going to be song leaders. Not all of us are going to be wonderful lapel grabber, salvation preachers. We're all different. But God has gifted us all in a certain way. God has opened certain opportunities. And if we're faithful to Him, then He is moving through us and our worth is as great as Billy Graham's or anybody else you can think of to Him. All He wants us to do is be faithful where we are. What's the little phrase? Bloom where you're planted. And I don't really think that in Get to Heaven, it's going to be kind of a giant Tupperware party, you know, where you get five diamonds for doing this and four diamonds for this and three diamonds for that or whatever it all is. My father used to photograph Tupperware parties and all these people got their different uh, things for whatever they did. And it's the same with other pyramid type things. But what is the reward? Well done, thy, thou good and faithful servant, whether thou hast been the result or the the person God used to convert 10,000 or 10 or 1. He doesn't keep count like we do. <laughs> you know, we have all our little brownie uh, points that we we keep track of. And uh, churches are often uh, rated according to how many people they've got in their congregation and how many souls were saved this past year or baptized or whatever else. And God doesn't keep track that way. God keeps track of the faithfulness of the people individually doing what they are supposed to do. And you and I are not all given the same task to do. You know, we all know this, the, Paul's description of somebody's the thumb and somebody's the ear and somebody's the nose and somebody's the toe and, and whatever else. We're all different parts of the body. The body doesn't function very well with any of its parts missing. And, and no part of the body can say another part is not as valuable. No, the janitor of the church is as important as the preacher of the church to the ongoing well-being of the church. Um, the Sunday school teacher is as valuable as the board member or whatever you know, relationships you want to, to talk about. They're all critical. And all God is concerned with is our faithfulness in doing what he has given us to do. I think if we were just constantly remind ourselves of the fact that God is the Lord sovereign of the universe whether we acknowledge it or not. It doesn't change his sovereignty because I say, well, I don't really think that's really true. I don't even believe in God, so therefore he's not sovereign. Oh, really? God's sovereignty is not changed by what I think or do or believe. 
We've read Philippians 2, so we won't turn there again, and certainly you've read it many times. But you know the passage which says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be no exceptions. The Buddhists can't say, well, Buddha was the way, and I didn't know anything about Jesus Christ, therefore I don't have to bow to him as Lord. The Mohammedan can't say, you know, Jesus was considered to be important to us, but he was not God. I mean, how many Mohammedans would be willing to say that Jesus Christ is Allah? Well, none that are still Mohammedans. <laughs> that isn't going to make a hill of beans a difference. They're all going to have to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But woe to those who don't do it in this life because they face the second death, which is eternal damnation. What to me is tragic is for the one who calls himself a believer but doesn't want to submit to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in his or, or her life. There are those who do so, and I think all of us have been guilty at some point in our lives of having an attitude similar to this, that we're just kind of afraid that if we submit to his lordship, we're going to miss something. Something we want to do or to be or to see or where to go or we're going to somehow miss out if we submit to his lordship. He's going to say, you know, because many view him as the great cosmic wet blanket, you know, the cosmic killjoy up there. Thou shalt not, you know. And they don't believe what Jesus said in that passage that we so often quote in Matthew 6:33 where we are told that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all these things will be added unto us. Now, obviously, you know, if, if what we're attracted by are the things of the flesh, that all these things being added to us are not going to be things of the flesh that gratify our flesh only. But if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we are changed. And what we want changes. And we want these good and perfect gifts that he's going to give. And we are a totally different person. Not saying that the things of the flesh don't still appeal to us. They do. But we recognize that God isn't going to give us this fleshly thing because it wouldn't be good for us anyway. And in our sane moment, we acknowledge that. We don't really want it. Our flesh may say, yeah, I want it. But our spirit says, no. That's the war that goes on. And Romans 7 and 8 deals uh, you know, with that a war that goes on inside us. And, and it's a war that will never end as long as we're in this life. You know? but, but we are, of course, going to be victorious. Uh, let me turn to the last two verses of that chapter, Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for light, for the light, to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. This is just a brief little passage which deals with a very practical matter, and that is the matter of keeping the menorah going, sort of the eternal flame, if you will. The people themselves were responsible. See, the people get an opportunity in participating in the worship. We have a sometimes kind of think of the worship as something that the priests did while the people just kind of around, went around yawning. No, not at all. 
The people had manifold ways in which they participated in the worship of God, not only in their own hearts as they turned to God, because they could do that just as we can. I can pray directly to God. They could pray to God even though there was a priesthood. God never said, I'm not going to hear your prayer because you're, it's not coming through the priest. God established the priesthood as a mediating organization to be symbolic of what Christ would do and would be for us personally. So the people were responsible here to provide adequate, high-quality olive oil as fuel for the menorah. So this was something they could do, to give to God that which would keep this flame going, which they would never see. They would never see that flame because it was in the tabernacle and only the priests could enter the tabernacle. But by faith they provided the oil that God requested. Then Aaron and his sons and, and those that would be descended later on as part of the uh, priesthood were responsible for the actual maintenance of the menorah and its constant refueling because they were admitted into the holy place, the outer through the first veil there, and could maintain the menorah. And that was their job, day after day, month after month, year after year. Just think, anything that we do constantly, we can be bored by that, can't we? Oh dear, more oil on the lamp, you know. It would, it would be up to them, incumbent upon them, to, to exercise their faith in the fact that even putting oil in the lamp was an act of obedience to the living God. He had commanded it, they're doing it, and in, their, in the act of doing it, they were being obedient to him. They were doing what he called upon them to do in this life. Now, you and I don't put oil in a physical menorah, but, but you and I can keep the oil of our own spirits going by providing that high-quality, fresh fuel of faith. Of course, God provides that faith, but, but we have to exercise it, and we have to accept it, and we have to allow it to be a part of our lives. Uh, to keep the flame of God's faith burning in our hearts. The 28th chapter of the book of Exodus is, is one of the fascinating uh, chapters of, uh, well, the whole Bible in many ways. It has to do with the establishment of the priesthood. And I'd like to read, we don't have time to really to go very far on this, but I'd like to read the first five verses and at least introduce the... Um, subject here. Uh, then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me, Aaron, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, and a tunic of checkered work, a turban, and a sash. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. And they shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and fine linen. God has been instructing Moses about the tabernacle, its enclosure. God now moves to a discussion of the priesthood. 
and focuses first of all on the attire of the priests. And in the first part, or this part of the chapter that we've read and, and on down through quite a bit of it yet, focuses primarily on the attire for the Kohen Gadol, the great priest, the high priest. The priest that has the responsibility of actually ministering inside the second veil of the tabernacle. It's kind of interesting here that this is the first passage in all of Scripture where the word Kohen, K-O-H-E-N, is used in association with the Israelites. Noah, you could say, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all carried out priestly functions in that they offered sacrifices on their behalf and on behalf of their family, but they were never called Kohen or priest. The only priests referred to in Scripture before this moment were Melchizedek, who was called Kohen, Potipharah, who was Joseph's father-in-law, and he was a priest of the Egyptian religion, so he doesn't count as a true priest. And then Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who was called Cohen, and uh, he was a priest of the Midianites, but obviously somehow, and, and a lot of things we're going to find out when that great eternal videotape plays history, and we go back and look at what really happened, you know, I'm sure God filmed it all. And we'll be able to, to see what kind of a priest really was Jethro, because Jethro seemed to be a man who believed in the Most High God and who wisely counseled Moses. I mean, <laughs> seems like he was a man who, who was truly a priest, but not after the order of Melchizedek, not even of the Aaronic order. So here we have for Israel the first establishment of a priestly order. And they are going to function all the way down until the time of the death of Christ. Now, they will function beyond the death of Christ, but as far as God is concerned, their role ceased at the death of Christ. And, of course, their role in offering sacrifices, and, and of course, particularly in ministering before the Ark of the Covenant, had long before that been lost. And, and the synagogue worship had prevailed throughout the land and, of course, prevails in, in Israeli worship all the way up until this day. Moses was God's anointed leader and prophet. He was authorized to consecrate the priesthood. And God said, it is your brother Aaron who will found the priestly family. And Aaron will become my first Kohen Gadol, high priest. You see, it wasn't because Aaron was a wonderful guy. Aaron's going to do some real stupid things, you know. Well, later on, he's going to forge this calf out of gold that the Israelites gave him. Just say, well, you know, it kind of threw, it just kind of, what excuse did he give to Moses? It just kind of came out. Right. He's going to do a lot of dumb things. And yet, God chose him to be the first high priest. Not because Aaron was specially holy, you know, a man who was without sin, <laughs> There's no such man except Jesus Christ. Not even Moses himself. But Aaron would be ordained by God to be the first high priest. His sons would be chosen to be the first four priests. And God knew when he ordained those first four that two of them were going to totally turn against him and be zapped. 
when he ordained them. He knew that. Funny how God functions. God chose you and God chose me to be part of his eternal kingdom, knowing what you and I would do and think and be later on in our lives. Not as an excuse for what we do, which is evil. But he knew that when he so chose us before the foundation of the world. And that gives me, you know, that's where you, you could kind of say eternal security comes in. You know, I don't really like that word. I mean, we are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. But it's gotten to have a bad reputation the way it's been kicked around. But the knowing that when God saved you and God saved me, he wasn't blind to what you and I were going to do, say, and be later on. Oh, no, I chose this guy. Look what he's doing. And no. God knows the end from the beginning. He knew you well, before you were ever born. And, and he knew who you'd be. And yet he said, I, I, you know, you are to be my child. Again, not an excuse to go ahead and live like the devil, but a underpinning, knowing that he accepts us as we repent and turn to him again and seek his mercy. And that, to me, is... is well, that's the essence of, of who God is and who we are in God. Well, we'll proceed with a study of this. There is some fascinating stuff in here about the attire of the high priest. It's really amazing, and we'll be looking at that.